I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1055. We're continuing working through the Gospel of Matthew and the Olivet Discourse in particular. And we'll begin reading in verse 36 this morning. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject, ready or not. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll begin reading in verse 36. And this is what the Word of God says. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. One of my favorite summertime games as a child was hide-and-go-seek. I couldn't wait to be it, the one who was supposed to count and then find everyone who was hiding before they made it back to base. And full of enthusiasm to dash the hopes of my friends winning the game, I would start the count. One, two, three. And as I would get closer to the end of the countdown, my pace would quicken. And then when I reached the magic number, I would shout the most important words. Ready or not, Here I come. The phrase, ready or not, here I come, is not only important to the game of hide and seek. This phrase also serves as a fitting description for this next section of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. For the second coming of Christ will take place according to the sovereign plan of God, with no regard for worldwide or individual readiness. Jesus is coming when he is coming, because the when and the how of his coming have long since been predetermined in the sovereign plan and wisdom of God. And in response to the disciples' questions in verse 3, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, Jesus described for them the signs of his coming. The abomination of desolation that would take place just before his coming. The supreme sign of his own appearing and the lesson of the fig tree. 
And now in these verses, Jesus addresses the when of his coming. All of the signs that Jesus has been describing will be conclusive proof that his end is near. And as he said himself, at the very gates. But even with the appearance of all of these signs, the exact day and hour of Christ's return will still be a mystery. As a result, Jesus describes for his disciples and us the time of his coming. And in so doing, he does not resolve the mystery, but instead admonishes his hearers in how they should live in light of his return. James Montgomery Boyce states that a third of chapter 24 and all of chapter 25, a total of 62 verses, warn us to get ready since we do not know when that day of final reckoning will be. Or to put it yet another way, Jesus stresses this single essential point within seven historical references Verbal pictures or parables, four in this chapter and three in the next. And the application is clear, he says. Are you watching? Are you ready for Jesus' return? And in four simple statements, Jesus teaches us about the day and the hour of his coming, reminding all of us that ready or not, here he comes. Would you notice with me, first of all, in verse 36, the second coming of Christ will be a surprise. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now the signs of which Jesus speaks in this chapter tell us that the time of His coming is near. But in this verse... Jesus goes on record to let us all know that there is no time and there is no date to write down. His coming will be at an unknown day and an unknown hour. And you'll notice at the beginning of verse 36, he uses the word but. And it's a contrasting word. And this word contrasts the phrase, these things in verse 34, and all of the signs that Jesus has been teaching his disciples that they will be able to notice. And the emphasis here of verse 36, that no one knows the day and the hour. Now this phrase, that day and hour that Jesus uses in verse 36, is synonymous terms that refer to what the Old Testament and the New Testament call the day of the Lord, or what the New Testament refers to as the judgment day, or the parousia, or the second coming of Christ. And in the remainder of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus will make reference to this phrase and to the point that he is making here in verse 36 three more times. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 42, he says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 44, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And so the text begs a question, doesn't it? Why are we not able to know the day? 
Why are we not able to know the hour? Well, if unbelievers were able to discern the day and the hour, in their pride and in their presumption, they would be tempted to assume that they would stay alive until the very end, and they would be tempted to postpone any decision regarding Christ until the last moment. And if believers knew the day and the hour, it is highly possible that we would be tempted to live undisciplined, careless, lazy lives, thinking we have all kinds of time to get ready for Christ's return. As a result, we can discern from the first part of this verse that Jesus is discouraging setting dates, and he is encouraging a continual posture of readiness for his return. And to further his point, in the middle of verse 36, Jesus declares that not even the angels in heaven know when he will return. Think of it. The angels who live in the presence of God and who behold his face, they do not even know when Christ's second coming will take place. Yes, the angels will be directly and actively involved in the end time events as God's agents and messengers and servants to separate the saved and the lost. But for his own reasons, God the Father will not reveal to his holy angels the time of the return of Christ until it's time for them to serve. Moreover, look at verse 36. At the end of this verse, Jesus says that he doesn't even know when he will return, that only the Father knows. And although he was fully God as well as fully man, Christ voluntarily restricted his use of certain divine attributes when he became flesh. And as Paul says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, to be held on to during his humanness. It wasn't that he lost any of his divine attributes, but that he voluntarily laid aside the use of some of them and would not manifest those attributes except when he was directed by his Father because he lived in complete and perfect submission to his Father. Daniel Doriani in his commentary on Matthew is very helpful on this point about how Jesus did not know the time of his return. And this is what he writes. Some are baffled by Jesus' assertion that he does not know the hour of his return. If Jesus is God, how can he not know? Remember that Jesus chose to limit his divine powers when he became a man. God is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. And Jesus possessed these powers, but chose not to exercise them at many points in his ministry. Jesus is omnipresent, yet he traveled from place to place by foot, typically, or by boat or donkey occasionally. And when Jesus wanted to go to Jerusalem, he walked. He didn't stand in Capernaum and tell the disciples, since I am omnipresent, I'm already in Jerusalem, so I'll stay here and see you there when you arrive. When he walked, he laid aside his omnipresence. Jesus is omnipotent. Yet unless he ate food, he became hungry, and without sleep, he became tired. Eventually, he slept hard. He did not draw on his omnipotence to fill his empty stomach or to refresh his weary body. Jesus is omniscient, yet he laid aside his knowledge too. 
Jesus asked genuine questions in the Gospels. In Mark 5, 30 to 32, Jesus asked who touched me and looked around to see who it might be. And in Mark 9, 16, he asked the disciples, what are you arguing about? And in John 5, 6, he asked a man how long he had been sick. On other occasions, he asked visitors, what do you want me to do for you? Indeed, he says, if Jesus had constantly exercised his divine attributes, he would not have led a genuine human life. If he endured no human limitations, his incarnation was a charade. If the crucifixion caused Jesus no pain, how could he suffer for us? If no bodily desires touched him, how can we say he was tempted in every way as we are? So Jesus truly did not know when he would return. He did not need to know, nor do we. He finished his work, so he is ready to return. If we are faithful, we will be ready too. But what about now? Does Jesus know his return now? Does he now in heaven know the day and the hour when he will come back? Well, it seems to me from Scripture that after the resurrection, Jesus Christ exhibited full divine knowledge. For at the beginning of his statement on the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, he said, All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. And additionally, just prior to his ascension, Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1, 7, that it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And Jesus repeats the truth that the disciples would not be told the time of his appearing. But he never indicated that he did not know the time of his appearing as he did in the Olivet Discourse. Friends, the implications of verse 36 are clear. First, if no one knows the day and the hour, then we should all reject everyone who says they do. Second, we should stop thinking about Jesus when Jesus will return and start living every day as if today could be the day. Scripture never promotes the question, when will Christ return? Scripture always promotes the question, will you be ready when he returns? And that's the issue. Will you be ready when he returns? Well, the second coming of Christ will not only be a surprise, the second coming of Christ will also be sudden in verses 37 to 39. And Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now notice in verse 36, or 37, excuse me, that Jesus makes a comparison between the days of Noah and the coming of the Son of Man. And he does it to illustrate and warn that people will not know the day and the hour, nor will they be ready when he returns. Now Moses described for us the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. And this was Moses' description. <clears throat> the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The days of Noah were marked by spiritual decline, 
social deterioration, shameless depravity, strong delusion, and sudden destruction. And the language that Jesus uses in this passage points to a world that will be largely unbelieving at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you this morning, friends, that this is really important to realize, especially in light of the resurgence of the eschatological view of postmillennialism, which holds to the belief that Christ's kingdom will eventually triumph in the world and then the Lord Jesus Christ will return. The word millennium refers to the reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign that the book of Revelation describes. And postmillennialism means that Jesus will return only after his rule has been universally established. And according to this view, Jesus' reign in and through the church will take place and then he will return once the church's mission is fulfilled. But would you look at the language of this text, this is not the instruction that Jesus gives his disciples. Rather, he is telling them in these verses that there will be an increase in wickedness and there will be an increase in apostasy in the church leading up to his return. It's what all of the New Testament teaches. For instance, Almost all of 2 Peter chapter 2 and all of 2 Peter chapter 3, two-thirds of Peter's letter describes the evil of the final days. And at the beginning of this letter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter wrote of the presence of false prophets in the last days, saying they will secretly bring in destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. It doesn't sound like a description of the church reigning in triumph. The book of Jude is almost entirely about such times. And in Jude chapter 7 and in Jude verses 17 to 19, the author seems to echo Peter's words. And he writes, Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. That that's what the last days will be like. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul wrote, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. And if you need no further analogy, just listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. That is the commentary that the New Testament gives about the last days. And none of these passages teach that the church is to be pessimistic. 
contrary. The church is told in these passages through the Apostle Paul to preach Christ everywhere, to be sober-minded, to do the work of the evangelist, to endure hardship, and to fulfill your ministry. And we preach Christ everywhere knowing that all whom God has elected to be His people will hear the gospel, will repent of their sins, and will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Christ's church will be built. And Christ's church will be equipped. And all for whom Christ died, He will save. Not one will be lost. But neither do these passages teach that the church will be increasingly successful in the last days of this world. Rather, these passages teach that the church is to remain faithful and to endure to the very end, no matter how difficult it gets. And then Christ will come and Christ will establish His kingdom. And friends, it's all in the context of the text The end will be just like it was in the days of Noah. And in verse 38, Jesus uses the carelessness of those who lived in the days before the flood to illustrate the characteristics of the vast majority of people who will be living in the days prior to His return. Despite all of the perilous signs and wonders that Jesus has been describing, He is saying in these verses that people will be unconcerned about the things of God. That they will not expect, nor will they care, that Jesus' return is imminent. And not only were the people of Noah's day careless, Jesus teaches us in verses 37 and 38 that they they were cruel. That they ridiculed all of Noah's warnings. Did you know that the Bible teaches that Noah preached and built the ark for 120 years and prepared for the flood? And the Bible records that in those 120 years, not one person outside of his immediate family believed his preaching and listened to him. And the people of Noah's day were just as unconcerned about his preaching and his warning of coming judgment as they were about his building of the ark. They were careless about it and they were cruel towards it. They thought it was meaningless and absurd. Can you just imagine? In the days of Noah, the people had never seen rain, let alone a flood. And here was a righteous, godly man standing up day after day for 120 years, just like I'm doing this morning, proclaiming that judgment is coming. And can't you hear it in his voice? He's standing there in front of the ark. He's laid down all of his tools. He's propped him up a sawhorse. That's his pulpit. And he's preaching and he's saying, listen to me. God spoke to me. He told me, judgment's coming. He's going to send a flood. And He told me to build this ark. And this ark is your safety. It's your refuge. Come to the ark. Believe in God so you won't perish. And can you imagine all those hard men in the days of Noah standing there listening to that day after day, not seeing a drop of rain, not seeing a cloud in the sky? Can't you imagine what they said to him? Oh, Noah, you're a fool. 
Who would believe a message like that? What are you doing building that boat for? It's not going to float in the desert. They were cruel. They were careless. And in verse 38, Jesus said that the people of Noah's day, when the flood came, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And Jesus is saying, in spite of all of the signs and the warnings, the people living on earth at the time of his coming will be going about their normal everyday lives and in a blink of an eye, their whole world will change. Warren Wearsby said it this way, it is a dangerous thing to get so absorbed in the pursuits of life that you forget that Jesus is coming. And the people alive in the days prior to Jesus' return, they will be so consumed with the normal everyday things of life, they could care less if Jesus returns. One commentator said, beware of thinking that the day-to-day stuff of your life in this world will last. One day it's all going to be turned upside down instantaneously. And I would add, all the things that you lived for for this world will be lost. And you'll find that you weren't prepared for the world to come. Look additionally in verse 39. Jesus describes the callousness of the people of Noah's day saying they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. He's saying that the people of Noah's day were so indifferent that they didn't understand what was happening until it was too late. And what's interesting about the story of Noah, if you go back and study Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7, Noah preached for 120 years. He built the ark for 120 years. And then seven days before the flood came, God came to Noah again and he said, Noah, in seven days... I'm sending the flood. Now, can you imagine what Noah did with that final message? He'd been preaching for 120 years and only his family had listened to him. Could you imagine his sermons those last seven days? I imagine he had new energy. I imagine he had new passion. Seven days, people. Seven days, I'm telling you. And God's bringing judgment. Come to the ark. Come to the ark. And at the end of seven days, the Bible says no one listened to him but his family. And Noah and all of his family and all of the animals that God told him to put in the ark, the Bible says they all went into the ark and they all went in through the same door. And listen to what the text says. The text says that when they all went into the ark, God shut the door. And you say, well, why did God shut the door? Well, God shut the door because God knew that no one else was coming. God shut the door to save Noah from questioning himself. Did I wait too long? Did I wait long enough? I should have left the door open just a little bit longer. No, God shut the door because God knew everyone was rejecting him. And the Bible says that the rain began to fall on the earth. And Noah and all who were in the ark rose above the waters of the flood. Can you imagine those hardened men that had been ridiculing Noah over his preaching. Can you imagine them sitting at home with a tin roof over their shelter? Drop, drop, drop. There's clouds in the sky. I've never seen clouds before. 
And now the rain's coming a little bit harder. Can't you imagine them grabbing their family? Come on, we're going to the ark. And by the time they get to the ark, the water's at their knees. And they're pounding on the door. Let us in, Noah, let us in. We believe you. But God shut the door. And when God shuts the door, no man can open it. And look what Jesus says in verse 39. Just as it was in Noah's day, that's what it's going to be like with the coming of the Son of Man. That just as in Noah's day, people were callous and cruel and careless to the gospel, to the preaching, and to prophecy. So in the last days before Jesus comes, they'll be cruel, they'll be callous, They'll be careless. That Listen, can you imagine it? Just picture what he's saying. All of the signs and evidences that he's given his disciples in all of these verses leading up to this text, Jesus is saying in these verses, they will have no effect on the people who are alive on earth just before he returns. They will make excuses. They will say, oh, that's just scientific uh, things that have taken place. God never would have done that. They'll excuse it all just like they do today. And that's what it'll be like when Jesus returns. And just as judgment loomed in the days of Noah, judgment is looming in our day, friends. Well, we not only see that the second coming of Christ will not only be a surprise, and the second coming of Christ will not only be sudden, the second coming of Christ will also be a time of separation in verses 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and one left. And two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and one left. In these verses, Jesus is teaching that at the time of his coming, there will be a sudden separation. That the two men working in the field will be co-workers. And the two women working with a hand mill will probably be closely related and most likely a mother and a daughter or two servants in the same household. And when you read verses 40 and 41 on the surface, it would seem that both are identical situations and that both are even identical in their relationships. That is, until Christ returns. And with these two pictures, Jesus is describing a time of separation between those who know him and those who do not. It'll be a time of separation between the saved and the lost. Look at what he says. One will be taken and one left. Now, many people use this verse to describe and illustrate the rapture of the church, but that's not the context of this verse. This verse is not talking about the rapture of the church. This verse is talking about the second coming of Christ, and that at the second coming of Christ, there will be both saved and lost on the earth. The word taken that Jesus uses here means to be taken away in judgment. It has an emphasis of violent action. It could be translated to remove or to destroy or to kill. And Jesus, if you'll look carefully, is using language that parallels the language that he used in verse 39 to describe the unbelievers of Noah's day. 
And just as the people of Noah's day in verse 39 were unaware until the flood came and look at the text, swept them away or took them all away, so too will be the unbelievers who are taken away to judgment when Jesus Christ returns. And just as Noah and his family were the only ones left who survived the flood, look at the text, so too the believers at the time of Christ's return will be the only ones left with their Lord who has come to establish His kingdom. This is the same separation described in Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 to 46, with the sheep and the goat judgment. That the ones left will be Christ's sheep, His redeemed people, whom He will preserve and whom they will reign with Him in His kingdom. And the ones taken away will be the lost, those who do not know Christ. Now look carefully at verses 40 and 41, and don't miss what I'm showing you. It is not a difference in their work. It is not a difference in their situation of life that causes the separation. It is a difference in their readiness. Just as it is in our day, so it will be in the last day. The godly and the ungodly will be mingled and live together. And when Christ returns, there will be a sudden and complete separation. And on that day, there will be no time for repentance. On that day, there will be no time to change the direction of your life. When Christ appears, everyone will be taken and left as they truly are. And everyone will reap according to what they've sown. As James Montgomery Boyce says, these verses alone should encourage serious soul searching. For Jesus' teaching demolishes any future hope of universalism. The idea that in the end everyone will be saved since God would never send anyone to hell. And when Jesus says that one will be taken and one left, he means that not all will be saved. That many will in fact be lost. Be sure that you are not among those who will perish. These verses also remind us that no one will be saved simply by being close to or related to another person who is a Christian. Salvation is not a hereditary matter. Everyone must believe. Everyone must repent. Everyone must receive Christ. It is an individual, personal matter. And I say to you today, children, you will not go to heaven because your parents are Christian and they raised you in a Christian home and they prayed for your salvation. Children, the only way you will go to heaven is if you confess your sins, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone to save you. And I say to all of us this morning that being a good person being a religious person, faithfully going to church, faithfully trying to do what's right, will not take you to heaven. If you live like that and you never turn from your sin and trust Christ to be your Savior, you will find yourself in verses 40 and 41. You'll be working, you'll be going about your everyday affairs of life 
And the person beside of you will be left and you will be taken. These verses call for serious, sober thinking about where we are with Christ. Well, the second coming of Christ will not only be a surprise, and the second coming of Christ will not only be sudden, and the second coming of Christ will not only be a time of separation. Finally, the second coming of Christ is a call to stay awake. Look at verses 42 to 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And in these final verses of this passage, Jesus admonishes his disciples to watchfulness. You'll notice the phrase stay awake is used repeatedly in these verses. And it translates a present imperative. It indicates a call for continual expectancy. Continually stay awake. Continually be ready. Continually expect the return of the Lord. For the day and hour of Jesus' turn will not return, will not be advertised any more than the signs that he has already given in this chapter. Therefore, Jesus says repeatedly, stay alert, stay awake, stay ready, be prepared. And in verse 43, Jesus further illustrates his admonition to watchfulness by describing his coming as being like a thief who comes in the night. Now, Jesus is not saying he is a thief. He is saying that his coming will be like that of a thief. And as Jesus indicates, successful thieves do not dial up the home or the business that they're going to rob and say, hey, I'm planning on coming to visit you at 2 o'clock in the morning and take all of your goods. No, they come unannounced. They come in stealth. They come as a complete surprise. Notice what Jesus says in verse 43. For if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. And you know the reality of his illustration, friends, because many of you are packing in your nightstand right beside your bed. You're just waiting for the thief to come. Did you know that there's four other places in the New Testament that use this same language that Jesus is using to describe his second coming as that of a thief in the night? Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, his second coming, will be like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. They will not escape. It will come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3. 
Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And Revelation 16, 15. Behold, wake up, pay attention. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. I ask you this morning, friends, how much clearer do you need Jesus to be? If you know that a thief is coming to your house, you're going to stay awake, you're going to be prepared, and you're going to keep watch and deal with the thief so you'll be ready when he comes. And Jesus says, that's what you ought to do in preparation to meet me. Stay awake. Be prepared. Be ready. Wake up from your slumber. Wake up from your carelessness, your casualness, your complacency. Stay awake. Be ready. And then in verse 44, Jesus issues his final warning. And he says, therefore, to begin this warning, therefore, because I'm coming like a thief, in light of that reality, you must be ready. I'm coming at a day and an hour you do not expect. <clears throat> Many believe that the word ready that he uses is a primary reference to salvation. Be ready in your salvation. Be ready in your relationship to me. Quit postponing getting right with me. Quit thinking you have the rest of your life to get serious about me. One commentator said the point of all of Jesus' illustrations in verses 40 to 44 is to teach us to be wise about his second coming so we will be ready. The generation that will be alive on earth when Jesus returns will not be ready to meet him. They will have rejected every warning. They will have rejected every prophecy. They will have rejected Christ himself. And they will be taken and swept away in eternal judgment with no Second chance. Be ready. Stay awake. Don't put off what you need to do with Jesus. Do it today. The great preacher J.C. Ryle said, Christians ought to live like watchmen. The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. They should strive to be always on their guard. They should behave like the sentinel of an army in an enemy's land. They should resolve by God's grace not to sleep at their post. Are you asleep, friends? Are you complacent? Are you going about your life in Christ casually? Carelessly. The reality of this text 
should be on our minds and our hearts. And it should influence everything we say and do. We should live in a continual expectation and readiness for the return of Christ. The question is not, will Jesus come again? For the answer to that question is an unequivocal yes. The real question is, will you be ready? For ready or not, here he comes. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us and care for us enough to teach us about the future and at the same time care about the state of our heart and our soul and challenge us to watchfulness and readiness and wakefulness. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to be sober-minded about this text. And then through the power of your word and the power of your spirit, you would bring application to our lives and the areas in our lives that need dealt with that are keeping us from being ready, that you would even deal with those this very day, this very moment. And we pray today, God, for those in this room, those watching online who are not ready, who don't know Jesus, that in this very moment, you would save them. That in this very moment, those who are walking far away from you and at a guilty distance, that you would convict and you would restore and you would bring to yourself. We pray today, God, with confidence that your word will not return void, that you would use this word today to build your people in your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.